Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice. Giving you a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Up to bat is our guest, Dr. Rob Butler. Rob works in Major League Baseball as the Director of Performance with the St. Louis Cardinals. He oversees player physical development, prevention programs, nutrition, and sports science, as well as the medical care for the affiliate teams. Today, we go around the horn discussing several topics in athletic training and strength and conditioning. We dive headfirst into the stress recovery cycle, strategies for working with large groups, and explore arm care, ACLs, and more. So now in honor of the great baseball legend, Vin Scully, it's time for the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. Got Dr. Rob Butler here with us uh, today. Really excited. Rob, we've been, we go way back, man. Um, you've been a friend of FMS, friend of Gray and I's for a number of years. So uh, let's kick this off by having you give us a little bit more of the background and kind of your journey as a professional and where you are today being the director of performance for the uh, Cardinals. Yeah, thank you very much. It's great to be here. It was about 12 summers ago in two, 2010 when we did that FMS level two over at Averitt and had my first taste of uh, Dr. Jones and uh, <laughs> quite the experience. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thinking back to how it got there, I actually, I leave my postdoc at Chapel Hill 2006. I go to Evansville where like there's like this guy named Kiesel and this other guy named Pussy are doing some stuff. And I'm like, but it's not, I'm a biomechanist. Like they're not really doing research. There's not like, they're not, they don't really understand movement. And at the same time doing my doctorate in physical therapy. And so during that time, um, I'm aware that biomechanics has a hard time integrating clinic cost dollars access. I mean, at the time we're not doing it, it's not on our phone. It's not wherever it's still, you know, quarter million dollars got dollar systems plus eight hours of process. So I knew we had a gap to fill there. At the same time, going through my DPT, you start to figure out all the things that we talk about from a movement standpoint. But then you go back to how consistent can we be with sharing that information, whether it's gait training, right? Whether it's single leg squat, whether it's just a squat in general, like just movement in general, talking about some sort of standard. Now I'm doing that as a, as a, during my PT degree at the same time, I'm in the lab and I'm, my next piece was to try to figure out really um, how do we minimize the chance for early joint breakdown and osteoarthritis? All right. So let me, let me pause right there, Rob, because I think that's interesting. So would, is it fair to say your background and being such a true formerly trained biomechanist, then moving over into, let's just say a movement clinical clinician, mm -hmm. is it really quantity versus quality? And when I say quantity, quantity in, you know, you're getting numbers, you're getting down to the nitty gritty in biomechanics. Whereas when you try to transition, bridge that gap, as you just put it, well, now you're trying to see almost like be more subjective. Well, I think it's a balance between seeing a smaller picture with more pixels okay. versus a bigger pick. I like that analogy because you take it to photography. There's focus and there's zoom. And, and the whole point of a screening process is not to give you fine detail. It's to let you know the weakest link. Mm -hmm. That's when I want you to zoom in, but not until the picture's clear. And so I do think that, that probably there was an illusion early in everybody's education where you think biomechanics mechanics is the way to answer these movement questions. And it is at that level. But when you start dealing in high numbers and practical value and stuff mm -hmm. like that, you find out that 
we should be screening movement and we should be doing biomechanical analysis of movement. And if you get the order wrong, everything's wrong. And if you get the order right, it's extremely efficient. And I, and I think nobody, including in my career, nobody had ever said these two things can coexist and mm-hmm. complement each other, but there's a time and place for each. And it's really hard um, once you see both sides of the fence to argue that one's your favorite. It's yeah. just a better tool at this time. Biomechanics is so focused at a joint, right? And yes, you can look at coupling across segments, but the idea of looking at a total body pattern is extremely complex. And there's, there's, there's a ton of compounding error that happens as you make those uh, calculations. So I'm going through PT school, having the lab, and we submit a grant. We submit a grant with uh, Kyle and Phil and some local clinicians to work on a movement education piece with the local middle school. And Kyle and I are just sitting down having a discussion um, over a beer at Taroni's. And, and uh, he's like, well, you know, how are we going to, what, you know, what does this look like? Is this a departmental initiative or whatever? I'm like, no, it's a lab initiative. He's like, well, no, the lab's a room. I'm like, the lab is not a room. The lab is a vision for what we can do with this space as a center point to, to support and enhance the community. And so it's from that point in time where we started, Kyle and Phil and I started to connect more on what does this continuum look like? I mean, Phil had already worked it out such that, I mean, when, when the Division I um, student athletes would go through their physicals, like everyone's getting a Y balance test, everyone's getting an FMS, like it was just part of the routine. And that was done before the orthopedic screen was done so that the orthopedics could figure out how to tailor their attention. That's not standard practice now at a lot of places. And right. so it's just funny, like, because it's Evansville and because it's just the way that, oh, those people do it, there's almost a minimal effect of like, oh, that's how it should be done. But then if you talk to the, if you really step outside and talk about any professional, what do you want to know? I just don't want to miss anything important. Well, if we front end this, you won't. Right. And right. so, so really it was at that point in time where one, I, I now had a way to think about movement from a broader perspective beyond just a single joint. Yes, this knee joint is a long-term issue, but what do we think about the fact that, yeah, the hip, the spine, core, they, they're not necessarily op- functioning in a standard way. I won't even call it optimal. I'm not sure we know what optimal are, but at a, at a standard level of competency that, and once again, I'm going to bring in my student career, standards are all that PEDS is. One of the toughest car courses I had, but it was the, the most impactful thing with it was there are certain milestones you're supposed to hit at certain times. And if not, it's not the end of the world, but we do something different. Partner that to what eventually happens with my kids' education. And first grade, Maddie's on, you know, letter J for reading. The next step is K. If that's, if J's too hard, we go back. Right. And, and, and so is the idea of, wait a second, why can't we not think about biomechanics movement on a more, more of a continuum as opposed to isolated and trying to connect some of those dots to create more community and more support around all the individuals we're trying to connect. And you're talking, Rob, you're talking way back when you're talking high school, you're talking, as you say, community, how much different is that in what your role is today? Or is it at all? At its core, it's not different. Right. It's just different. It's just that it's maybe a tighter age. I think the thing that's important in, in both observations, because I think that connecting 
some of the, the fundamentals of the way we help a child physically develop to the fundamentals of the way you maintain a minimum level of performance and development at the Cardinals. It's really easy, especially in today's time of, of specialization information, to try to post a superlative or get on a success mm-hmm. strategy. But if you look at most of the natural selective pressures in nature, sport, competition, obstacles, whatever, it's literally operating on a non-failure strategy. And, and, and the minute that became apparent to me, the people, like you said, that are simply looking, what's the weakest link? What's the minimum effective dose to budge that? What's the weakest link next? And those dry details are the exact same thing as that checklist manifesto stuff. And the minute you think you're above it, you can't even protect yourself from confirmation bias because that's actually that perspective allows you to get your confirmation bias on the back end. Mm -hmm. Please don't have it on the front end. The experts agree in the general best ways to screen everything except movement. (laughs) And then we rush right to our examination, our tactic, our specialty. And by you saying we've got these developmental milestones, we must achieve them to be considered motorically average or normal by this certain age. My question that I've had to ask myself, and I'm asking it to as many people as I can, if these developed milestones are absolutely cornerstones of the foundation of the way you move, when is it okay to lose them? And, and that's, that's the thing. We know that our performance will go up and, and down with age, but so many of those fundamental movements that got us upright actually are the fundamental things we look at keeping people upright even in fall prevention. Yep. Yeah. You know, fall prevention doesn't start with a walker. It starts with, can you get up off the floor? And, and a lot of people don't see that, but what's under this and what everybody thinks they're better than is practicing a non-failure strategy. You know, if you complete an orthopedic exam and you didn't check reflexes and you're in my clinic, you failed today. Let's not do that again. So when you say that, Rob, what comes to your mind when Gray's talking about non-failure and, and what are the, what are the fundamentals um, that we should be, if we're, you know, the audience out there listening, the professionals that we need to be checking? Yep. I mean, what are those things? And in, in your, in your mind, we're talking about, you know, working with kids up to the elite level. I think the important part is that you have a standard. And from our standpoint, our standard needs to be communicated efficiently and then repeated. Because unless you're at the major league level, there's a place for you to go that's not here. And so when you go to that spot, how do we repeat and continue to support in a way that it's not a distraction from what your goal is, which is getting in the major leagues and being the best or the only player to accomplish whatever you're going to do in your future career. And so I think that's what it gets back down to is it's not about being the strongest or the best mover or the worst mover. It's about understanding where you're currently at, complementing um, where you're at with where the standard is and to make sure that we don't push you beyond your current limitations. Because it's not, the goal is not to be the strongest person in the room or the best mover. The goal is to be the best baseball player. And I think one thing that people don't realize in your world, working at an organization like the, the Cardinals, Major League Baseball, everybody think about Major Leagues. But I would imagine 
Rob, you spent a lot more of your time down below there trying to create the standard, create the, you know, let's say, culture. And I think that that may be one thing that that I, I see personally seeing you go through this, that you took a lot of time and pride in creating. It's creating those standards, creating that culture where it's not, I mean, to be honest, it may not be the major leagues you're worried about as much. No, the, the, the culture and the foundation to me was the one thing that really started drive how we wanted to connect as a group. And so when we think about a performance department, it's kind of all the non-uniform staff. It's the athletic trainers, the strength coaches, uh, PTs, chiros, um, uh, sports science group. And then how do we create a common language? Why? Because I don't want to confuse anyone that's not in that group or doesn't know what we're trying to talk about or try to say, oh, well, this person has a different perspective. No, no, no. This is our information that we're sharing with you in a way that is relevant to the organization um, to support you as a coach or you as a player so you know where you're at and you know where you can go. In doing that, the expectation is consistent communication. We hope that through that, there's enough value over time that we that, that builds into relationships. But the relationships, those are, there's other things that have to happen there. There's trust, there's honesty, there's, um, there's commitment of some sort, but we can at least communicate and we can, and we really try to communicate as much as possible on things that are reliable and valid. Now that doesn't mean that we don't value the subjective. We just try to lean on the objective as much as possible and to fill the gaps with the less reliable so that there is a more consistent story as someone comes from 16 year old from Venezuela up the big leagues and we can track what that story looks like to support their overall long-term growth. And that does get back to the idea of some curriculum using those benchmarks to figure out how they get there as opposed to, Oh yeah, you're 16. You're going to be on the same program as so-and-so your growth velocity is this. Well, it doesn't really matter. It's the same program. No, like there's purpose. There's intent driven by the information we have available, driven on foundational movement and foundational strength conditioning concepts to support the development of the baseball. So basically when you're looking, when you're mining the data, when you're championing the data, how are you going to process it, talk about it, prioritize it? Um, it's, it's nice to give everybody a vote, but then turn around and look at the screen and see which one of these, you know, it, or is a tighter number. That's, that's what struck me when when Ray Dalio talked about the the way they run a financial decision at uh, Bridgewater Investments is radical transparency and algorithmic thinking, and it's not personal. There, there's you know, so there's there's room to collect this other data that we're not quite sure. We need that data too, but you know, your entire team should be able to look at a physical data sheet and see the same bottleneck. They shouldn't just be looking for the bottleneck. And, and describing where movement comes in there. I was talking about it the other day and, and you connected me with Dan Heath. I don't know if you remember that or not, but we had a great conversation and I thought we got really lucky with the movement screen because a functional movement screen is downstream from health and upstream from fitness. And there was, there was nothing in between those two things. If, if, if I say you're discharged, you must be as good as you were before the last episode mm -hmm. or injury. Mm -hmm. And we found out that's not so much the thing. So we learned by, by having that filter between exiting health and into fitness, how many things were left undone. It's nobody's fault. 
Right. Every job is different, every individual level of compliance with rehab and systematic thinking. But we had this capture point that we could sort of hold both sides accountable. Mm-hmm. Right. You had this movement screen when you started strength training. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect it to get right. worse. That's right. Yeah. And so looking at those, you probably could give me 10 pieces of data that would help you describe a durable performer mm-hmm. without using that word, yeah. because you were just saying it's not the best of the best. It's about this level of self-management, appropriate recovery, self-awareness, mm-hmm. you know, and that sustainability, that ability to, you know, show consistency. Um, well, and so that, and I actually, it's a great point you bring up and I'll go back to um, one of the, the, the brothers, the Heath brothers, um, legends in my mind. Um, uh, the book that really started to um, move things for me. And I think this was uh, one of the first books that John Turin told me to read. That was part of the great cook book club um, <laughs> back in uh, probably 11 or 12. And it was sweet. Yeah. In that story, I think they tell a very good, they tell a very good um, story about BP's drilling up. And I think this ties in well, because it's not that there's time for expertise, clinical expertise, but when that clinical expertise isn't present on a given day, for whatever reason, it'd be COVID, right? Honestly, like days, day and function, like how do you fill that void, that bucket? So the story goes basically, you know, BP drillers are great at, or explorers are great at finding drilling spots. I think it was like three out of 10 hit rates, but the amount of time to set up a rig and to drill, like it, extremely expensive. And so basically what they found out is that as they gave them small pieces of information, but we're still out there into intuition, it's not that the hit rates are perfect. They weren't 10 out of 10, but it was 8.5 out of 10. combining those things together with little pieces of information. And that's really what it's not that there'll be failures, but can you minimize your failure based upon simple pieces of information around that should guide you in a way to what that agreement is. And there's certain some priorities based upon geographic location, anything with us based upon certain positions, certain players, certain history, certain injuries in the past that we have additional information on that may supersede. But the idea is that we're all looking at the same page and being like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Or if not, I want you passionate enough to say, nope, we have to do this for this reason. All ears. This is a culture of trying to get it right. And no one, and as I, we joke that there's no gold standard. The gold standard is day-to-day how we optimize the health, wellness, and physical development of our staff related to their performance. But we have to keep pushing to get there. That's, that's interesting you say that because I think that's part of the problem in our profession, strength, conditioning, performance, and whatever. Everyone's trying to figure out what, what is the goals? What mm-hmm. is the standard? How do, you, how do you create this model that you're mm-hmm. creating? And it's, it's evolving. It's never, it's never done. And I think that's you know, a question I'm going to ask you is you know, with all the with all the data that's out there, I think we're getting so inundated with data and the data science and sports scientists, all this stuff that we're getting. When, when do you look at the profiles, Rob? Because I'm assuming that's kind of what your role is, is you're looking at all this information and you're trying to figure out what's, what's, what's important. And when do you look at something and say, well, you know, that's not as important as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. How do you figure that out? I was lucky enough to sit it every year. Uh, there's two baseball writers names that still happen. And one's in New York and one's in St. Louis. But say it again. I'm sorry. Baseball Writers of America Association. Okay. They have an annual dinner. Mm-hmm. And there's still an active, un- or active chapter um, in New York and one in St. Louis. And so it was three years ago. 
they give the Branch Rickey Award out, and they gave it out to Bill James. So he was there to talk. And uh, and the, something he said that still resonates with me to this. He's like, you know, people look at this new statistic or this new statistic, and they don't realize that the only stuff that kind of continues and has life is 5%, 1% of what we do. There's 95% else on the cutting room floor that wasn't good enough that didn't meet in addition to what we currently have that we move forward on. And so that's really kind of where we start from is what is the found? So a lot of our language now is standard, below standard, above standard. Period. Pain. Pain's on the table always, but it comes with a different bucket. That would be below standard. But, mm-hmm. um, but that has helped us to educate, one, the players, and then two, the coaches, and then I shouldn't say, I probably should have led with this, a zero is each other. Like, we're not saying they can't do X or Y. We just, there's a better option for them to perform core stabilization if they cannot do some basic core stabilization during a pressing exercise. Like, do we disagree with that? They're, they're below standard on a trunk stability push-up. Oh, well, let's, te- let's test them somewhere else. Okay, what's your criteria? And let's go back to figure out, is that reliable? Is that consistent? Because if, if that changes so much in tall kneeling, now you have your intervention. Yeah, and secondly... Once you have below standard, standard, and above standard, rates may vary. 100%. Right? Every, we all eat the same meal, but we have a different way of processing yep. and digesting that meal. Yep. So the cool thing is, I honestly think there's unnecessary conversation in what do you do to correct this or what mm-hmm. do you do to correct mm-hmm. that, whether it's single leg stance, core stability, yep. T-spine rotation. It doesn't matter what it is. People are looking for your tactic. Mm-hmm. They don't understand You've got five you're going to play if you have to. Yep. You've got a favorite two that you do. The whole point is, if I, cha- if I knocked you out of below standard to standard just by doing this, we could argue that I could have picked a different exercise, right? right? But it accomplished what I needed to do. Right. And then we start looking. Once you have those standards, you can see who can basically close those mm-hmm. cases mm-hmm. at an efficient rate and who's always got an excuse why the case didn't close. Yep. And that's the way I, I used to run clinics, yep. right? I knew what a stiff ankle looked like, and I'd see it change over there and not over there. That's right. But I wouldn't make a decision on, right? Yep. But 30 ankles on that table, and 19 of them did yep. great, and that's 50-50. Yeah. Th- that's a table problem, not that's an right. ankle problem, you know? Right. And so I, start, I, I won't question your tactics unless they don't, change the thing. And then I got to, and don't come at me with an excuse because excuses aren't reasons, but I don't think people want to look at their treatment, that transparency, because I almost think we hold our treatment like our artwork. Yes. No, yes. no. You, you got a right angle on that wall or you didn't, yep. you know, it's, it's yep. carpentry, man. Yep. And so do what you're supposed to do. Show me you close the case. Don't hypothesize why it didn't work. And I honestly think if people would apply a standard like we've always had, to corrective exercise, yep. so much of the minutia would just go away. 100%. Well, I think part of the problem a lot of the professionals have is one thing you brought up more than once, right, in this brief conversation already, Rob, is reliable and valid. Right. I don't think when, when we're talking standards here, you can't have a standard if you don't have a, a reliable or valid tool to which sure. put the standard up against, sure. right? Yeah, and I, and I think that, so I want to be cautious with one thing because the term validity is, is, uh, I will tell you that I just told you there's no gold standard so that you could tell me, well, there's no validity to it. Okay. That's fair. Yes. 
there's no, no, hold on, no, no, no. no, 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 no. Just define validity. So there's ten. There's the the definition of validity is how does it compare to a gold standard? That's really what it is. So the question is, do you have context validity of construct? Like, there's ten different forms of validity. I'll tell you what validity means to us, and that's the definition. We know what it means to us. That's it, and we know how to communicate that in a consistent way. Operational value. 100%. It adds value to a decision that we're going to need to make consistently or in a unique situation. Right. It doesn't matter, but it but it's operational value. 100%. That that word is embedded in there. So, you know, it ultimately it's what you're what you're valuing and like I said, I think you do a fine job of yes, we got all this data, but if your eye doesn't quickly get trained to the bottlenecks and weakest links, mm-hmm. I honestly think you're going to end up in a lot of debates you don't even need to have no trying doubt. to convince somebody something. Just look for the bottlenecks. And yeah, the order it's, of operations is important as well. Yeah. Right. And so, because we'll often just say, it was like, well, what's reliability? Well, I just want to know if I can give you consistent measure day to day. That's mainly what we're trying to address. Validity is I want to make sure I'm telling you the exact same thing and this other staff member is telling the exact same thing. And you're not getting confused on what definition we're throwing at you, mm-hmm. period. That's it. And so I think that fundamentally the things that have happened over continuing with um, this movement-based approach is there are really a couple of things that people will measure, will mention in, uh, in, in the department. And one is bringing up a test retest and saying, that's the expect that you are kind of your own gold standard. What's the test retest look like to make sure we've made an improvement or we haven't. And sometimes the improvement isn't in movement, it's in feeling, and that's not a problem either. But let's make sure, let's understand what did we make a change in. As a healthcare professional, most of your patients likely walk through your door already experiencing pain. The SFMA is your initial assessment and provides a differential diagnosis that leads to more efficient treatment. And now it is easier than ever to get certified by signing up for one of our SFMA live virtual courses. We offer SFMA level one and two virtual courses online guided by a live instructor who will take you through the entire process. You'll be able to ask our team questions in real time and watch instructors work through live models throughout the day to be sure you leave with a clear understanding and the ability to start implementing the SFMA into your own practice. And for a limited time, we'd like to offer our podcast listeners a special rate for this SFMA virtual training experience. Follow the link in the show notes and use promo code VERT22 at checkout for $50 off your virtual SFMA Level 1 or Level 2 certification courses. That's V-I-R-T-2-2. And if you bundle them at checkout, you'll save an additional $220 automatically. We look forward to you joining us. Now back to the show. When we get to the essence of everything in human development, Mm -hmm. there's a stress recovery cycle, Mm -hmm. okay? You got to go through that cycle. We all have different patterns, but we all are obliged to that cycle yeah. and they're markers for recovery and they're markers for healthy stress. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm going to ask you about this about pro athletes. Is it harder to enforce standards of recovery and state of readiness or loads and amount of stress? Uh, you know, I love to talk mm-hmm. because if you talk about one and not the other, it's getting ready to change anyway. When you stress them up, you got to have more time dedicated 100%. to recovery and markers to indicate it because it's not 100%. just time. So, so, you know, so in a similar pattern, was so, you know, the standard below standard above standard. It started with those zero, one, two, three with the FMS, but then it started to think about using the Heath brothers discussion. Like, how do we communicate? How do we connect? How do you know? How do we make it stick? Right. 
Um, and so that's when we start talking about uh, average, below average, above average. Well, that's when we start to change our ortho numbers, range of motion, average, below mm-hmm. average, above average, your recovery today, average, below average, your sleep. So it's not this, it's not but this when you board scale a- of six to 20. But when you say average, below average, you're talking just within your organization. Right? Or are you comparing it to some other standard? Oh, I don't know. Um, we have a pretty good database internally to be able to compare to to, okay. to look at this and, yep. and see what is current normal for us. Yep. And, and honestly, like these are subjective reports. Sure. And so when we talk about the subjective report and the check in on a day to day basis, it's, it creates a more efficient environment because now I don't have to track you down to ask you how you're doing. And when you're one athletic trainer or one strength coach and there's 28 guys in a room that are either in one, one of 19 parts of the stadium that helps us to best support. Cause the question that when we, when players check in or they have a discussion with us, it's not about not playing tonight. It's about what should you do differently between the time you check in and game time to optimize what you're going to do. And if you're feeling average, then, Hey, your routine for whatever you got planned, it probably works out. Okay. But if you didn't sleep real good last night, one of different reasons you're really sore this today, whatever, let's not do the same thing that you would have done on average. And I really feel like that's honestly one of the things now where um, when I look at the general fitness, the general health and wellness discussion, it's like you got to max out on one thing. And, and I think that the easiest example is everyone thinks they need a running program. Well, have you done a walking program? Have you taken 30 minutes out of your life to put on shoes, to put on shorts, to just walk as opposed to be painful with running and then say, you're done with all this. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's and because once again, like what's, if you're trying to make progress, it's not done tomorrow, but it's making a step that you want to do it again the next day. You know, Rob, what's your, you know, it's, I want to take just pause here and let you guys respond to this. Cause I think, I think a lot of people out there listening, maybe just like overwhelmed listening to, to you guys, they kind of go back and us just kind of chat about it, but it's simple. What one point you just made right there, player comes in, you ask him some questions, whatever. And you're basically trying to find out which, which bucket are you in today? 100%. Whichever bucket you're in today changes what that person needs to do. That applies in every scenario. So yeah. don't think that just because you're dealing with a major league player versus a 15 year old kid. Yeah. Hey, how are you doing today? Yeah. Well, I'm not doing that great. Okay. Yeah. That changes what you do. hundred percent. That's it. And, and no, I, I, I also, when go back to one of our old moves, you, and, and this is what I love with a biomechanics room. You take somebody with a great biomechanical background and show them a little party trick, like a toe touch progression, find somebody in the room that can barely get to the patellas, run them through a couple of, <laughs> muscle tone washes and all of a sudden they can touch their toes biomechanically there are changes occurring everywhere but basically all we did was dump some inappropriate tension and tone and pick up some favorable alignment what i want to throw out there and what you opened the door to is is a toe touch progression a warm-up or a corrective exercise well this is where i really went deep in my writing and started thinking a warm-up should change your state of readiness regardless of your risk factors, if possible. Mm-hmm. And a corrective exercise should be working 
maybe against some of those risk factors or some of those below standard mm-hmm. markers mm-hmm. in movement that we capture. Mm-hmm. Very, sell, very often they can be the same because that which improves your state of readiness is probably also scrubbing something long term. So anytime you can check two boxes on, on a warm up that's working against maybe a long term risk factor, uh, single leg stance yeah. on left, your balance is low, but it's also giving you a state of readiness indicator. I didn't have that feedback loop outside of the range of motion people mm-hmm. would get in a squat mm-hmm. or a toe touch until we got that little motor control screen. You and I were playing with it a lot. It's that yep. forward reach, but it's literally squeezing your single leg stance into an organized pattern that you've got to begin and end with integrity. When I realized just a few correctives, mobility or stability, could upgrade your subconscious balance and make it more symmetrical. I'm like, that's my warm up. That's my state of readiness thing. And so when you have somebody who's coming in, their state of readiness is compromised. You quit thinking long-term. And just mm-hmm. like you said, what would upgrade your state of readiness right now? Mm-hmm. And so some people, bad sleep, low hydration, they go high tone, right? right. So believe it or not, anything you do to help them will express itself by normalizing tone. A lot of people, sleep deprivation and dehydration, get really sloppy in balance. The exact same exercise may improve their motor control. So, so many people take this mobility stability thing and try to issue correctives almost based on a kinesiological thing. Uh Uh-uh. I'm just looking for most people have a subconscious balance signature. And there's a few things we could often do to upgrade that. Some people have a subconscious mobility signature, and there's a few things we could do to upgrade that. We know it only lasts 32 minutes, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But that's what we we would love to practice with 32 minutes of better balance, better symmetry, and more favorable muscle tone. Um, and so I really started going deep on people who all their warm-up is, is their workout light. And all their correctives are, are what they did from warm. I'm like, no, they, they can actually be two different things. It's, it's neat to see the similar exercise have a two-prong uh, scrub on you, but a warm-up should change your state of readiness and you should have a measurement that is showing that. I should walk to any kid doing your drill, bring them over here and see a slight upgrade in whatever their bottleneck was. Yeah. That's a warm-up to me. Yeah. That's, a, that's a state of readiness uh, trigger. Yeah. So. Well, I still remember talking to John Tareen early about some of that stuff as I was heading into pro sports and he was, and he would, you know, how do you take it that big a team and do, you know, a corrective, some corrective exercise buck. He's like, well, in this corner, we had this group in this corner, we had this group. And in this corner, we had this group in this corner, we had this group and these problems we fixed in the weight room. And it was just, and it was just, it, it just helped to um, think about, you know, you're not left with, seven things to work through from a foundational perspective, but it's more of just, you know, once you've taken the time or you have some veterans on that you've worked through, not even necessarily veterans, but a couple years in, they should be at a level of competency. Then now they go into a different, a different pattern and can sometimes lead this, but the focus and, and this took me a while to get to, and I don't, I don't know, but I, I guess I'm dense at times, but the goal is to just consistently do something. Like, I think at times we, we would find ourselves getting really creative with this lift or this lift or this lift. It's like intent doing a, a strength conditioning program 
at the intent it's expected and with the quality that's expected often enough to make the changes is the foundation. No. And that's what I was getting to with the stress recovery cycle. They only got so much time to recover and they only got so much energy. You can point at stress. Mm -hmm. Please don't waste that. That's right. Right. That's right. And, and isn't it ironic that, you know, I, I too give John a lot of credit for, for really streamlining a corrective influence on a team. And it's the same time. It's the same platoons, but instead of being a platoon of linebackers mm-hmm. over there, mm-hmm. it's a platoon of T-spine mobility right. over there, regardless of position. That's right. And, and that was it. But, but it was that same, oh, we can fix this in batches. We can fix this in groups. These are like things. Lee's using the term buckets, right. you know, in any given team, I could, I could do it with as uh, few as three buckets, mm-hmm. or we could branch it out to six buckets, but mm-hmm. platooning your problems. And just like you said, there's going to be a veteran. In that problem, there's going to be a rookie in that problem. And a rising tide usually floats all boats. And so it's actually constructive to see these people with similar problems, almost group dynamic, offering each other a little encouragement, a little bit of help. You see one person changing a little bit better. I mean, you know, Roger Bannister, and then all of a sudden everybody was running four-minute miles. So you see one person clear their ankle mobility and get a better squat. Oh, I thought I had bad hips for life. Right. <laughs> right. So no, it's, it's, it's really, it's really neat to see that, that transformation and the, a lot of the things that have always been successful ways to run big groups and teams are easy with this data too. You you're just thinking about different platoons. That's it. And we have different risk factors nowadays. Yeah. We have different problems and we have different issues, but back to that stress recovery cycle, do you often see people, I guess, in their drive to be better or their drive to try to create change, overstress themselves or waste their stress unnecessarily? Or do you see more of habitual lack of recovery? Are, are they showing up under recovered or overstressed? And I know it's easy to say both, but which one could I focus on and maybe see both improve a little bit? I often ask myself that because both answers could be true. Yeah. Right. I, th- I think yeah. in, in youth athletics, we might go one way and pro we go the other way and then mm-hmm. it's going to be different for everybody, but you got markers for those. And I started thinking back in, in our sort of movement mentality, we say mobility first. Mm-hmm. A lot of people screw that up. They think we're saying stretch first. We're not. We're saying if you got a mobility bottleneck, do what changes that. Right. Right. Let mobility be your indicator. There may be a stability program. That, That's right. Okay. Same thing. If you are worried, stress recovery is broken. I honestly think before you start messing with stress, just show me you can recover yep. first. Right. Yep. You got to show me we can get you back to baseline. And then I'll know what it takes to knock you off of that. But the true athletic development model that I'm sort of alluding to in the, some of the new writing I was doing is it's going to be pretty hard to have development without homeostasis. Mm-hmm. That word balance comes back in and it seems to be the thing that we find most off when, when Lee and I got to consult on broken right. cases, there's sure. something's out of balance here. Yeah. You know, Mike Roos, who's, who's one of the guys I consulted with, with the Red Sox or was on, was part of the, Condition group with the Red Sox that I was consulting with that when I was at Duke. Um, we, we gave a talk at ACSM 2016 in the spring. 
but with Doc Arnold too. And we're just talking about some different ways of building up, up a performance team. And, and, uh, and I don't know why it hit me, but you know, Mike's got a way of saying things. And he goes, he goes, how many of you in the audience show up for your job? 162 days out of 180. And then your preseason of that is showing up for work, uh, 45 days out of 47. No one does that. Right. And so the most stress they're going to have is their job. It's their performance. And they better do that at a stressful level. And that better creates stress because that means they're playing well. And so I don't want to change that at all. I want to encourage that. But it's that balance of, so to us, honestly, when we think about our gold standard, the game's the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about referencing things, it's to the gold standard. There were two things that I think that helped us along this journey to kind of connect better and communicate better. One is being okay that you need some recovery work. Being okay that we expect you to work hard enough such that there's intentional recovery associated with it afterward. The other part is we need to start talking about this. Your, when you think about your total volume for the day, it's not just the game. It's your pregame work. And I think too often it's like, oh, I just did pregame. Man, you've been here for four and a half hours. You did something more than nothing. And so what is that? And how does that tie into your overall equation? And I, and I think, um, and I, I think one of the, and I would say as general humans, we don't give ourselves, and when I talk to community members and neighbors, they don't give themselves credit for being a parent, right? They don't give themselves, they, oh, I got to get it working. And well, what are you doing today? Well, I'm running here and I'm running here and I'm running there. And I, da, da, da. and I actually think that that's one of the most powerful ways that the heart rate monitors can help us educate us is how much work we're doing when we don't feel like we're doing anything necessarily. And so that component, I think, is creating a holistic view of what our day and our health and wellness looks like, as opposed to, oh, during my 30-minute workout, I hit this interval and this interval. Well, wait a second. What'd you do during the other 23 and a half? And understanding and embracing that and then making adjustments or recommending adjustments based off of that, I think has helped us, and not dramatic one way or the other, but hey, let's nudge you to consider doing this a little bit differently today than we did yesterday because this is what we're seeing. I mean, Robert, you and again, just just getting in kind of switching gears, but thinking more practically when you talk about to a high school, a high school baseball coach or these travel coaches out there, and they got the pitch count on their guy, and they say, Oh, you've met your minimum pitch count. Well, that doesn't include everything they did before they yeah. started pitching. Yeah. And there's no pitch count. You know, the kids basically going, hey, yeah, I'm ready to go. They may have thrown 50 pitches. They may have thrown 100 pitches, yeah. right, before yeah. the game. And now they're just, they're now arbitrarily, now they're counting the pitches. Well, and, 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 and I'd say on the top of that, it's like how many were like these really. Oh, I'm opening up the can of worms in, here. I get that. Like we're going to spin this this way and do that that way. I still remember, I still remember it was, uh, it was a couple years ago, three to four. And I mean, Florida, everyone plays baseball and whatnot. And this is just on the backfields with um, the, the Velociraptor was playing, it was six playing T-ball and yelling and screaming something and hitting a ball to left field and tackling someone. I don't know, but. Anyway, I was I was trying not to pay attention to that, and and um, uh, there was there was an eleven year old, maybe ten, next to me, and the coach was talking about, "Hey, throw your curveball, throw your curveball." And listen, I didn't grow up playing good baseball. Like I stopped when I was twelve, and I wasn't that good either. But when you hear people talk about it, the first thing they talk about is command your fastball, and so like. Hey, Johnny, can you throw your fastball to certain locations consistently? 
and start with just being good at the basics consistently and realizing the benefit of that before thinking you got to trick somebody, right? Yeah. To like to to have success. And so um and so and listen, I'm not saying don't spin, I'm not saying that causes elbow injuries. I'm not saying anything like that. But it's more of I feel like more than anything from a youth level, it's let's get better quicker with gadgety stuff as opposed to just plowing the field and made and getting something to prepare to grow from in the future that we can build off of as opposed to just getting there faster. Well, why do you, you know, I had some online discussion recently and about 16 year old strength conditioning program. She only plays high school. Will she be seen by division one programs? And I responded, if she still wants to play college and soccer, she'll have outlasted 80% of her competition. Yeah. 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 All right. And, I'll tell you what, unpack some of the stuff you were saying. Cause I know when, uh, um, it was maybe a year ago, Kyle yeah. Matzel and that, yeah. that whole arm care, yeah. uh, paper, yeah. um, when you started that journey, yep. did you find exactly what you thought you'd find or did you get some surprises and, and tell our listeners sort of that journey that you went on? I mean, from where you sit all the way back down to maybe polling coaches and, yeah. and stuff like that in, in youth, unpack that for us a little bit. Well, so I don't know that Matzel really wanted me on the project, nor anyone else. I'm that, sure he did. But that's okay. <laughs> I've that's been on okay. projects hey, listen, with you. We all make... We, we all make question of life choices at the time, including my wife. So, um, so the question he was trying to solve was, should we do more preventative specific movement based work, identification screening, and then an intervention for, um, for baseball players. And then how do we take it to the field such that the coach can do it? All right. Similar in the spirit of on base but maybe we can take it a little more rural from that scenario with some more foundational pieces of it. Um, and I said, and I said, like, I don't think people aren't valuing staying healthy. It's just like, do you know the limiting factors that are currently part of that perception? And so yeah, I think from my perspective, and I think it was good to set up the future engagement with it is like, what are the limitations right now? It's not different than saying we have to be a nutritious society, but not understanding our food delivery chain. What's the limiting right. factor? And so, so basically you got Kyle, some coaches that don't even think they need arm care, 100%. baseball and baseball like activities and general exercise takes care of it. Others almost fall off the deep end and they're dedicating time to arm care. But are these exercises really generating everything? The one thing that I had this conversation waiting on this, uh, Stanley McChrystal, ex general wrote an article called risk. He said in every risk, it's threat plus vulnerability. I honestly think that too much of athletic arm care is focused on the threat of a throwing sport, which is fine. We know throwing arms have unique mm -hmm. array of problems, but each individual has uh, vulnerabilities. So general hip mobility problems, balance, these all are, are really upstream of a shoulder problem, mm -hmm. the way you generate power. So I honestly think that by actually doing a screen, you get a movement sort of profile of the person who's got to throw. Mm -hmm. You already know the best exercises for throwing support, yep. but, but, you know, and so that's what I've seen is a, the people who are into arm care generalize it like let's everybody take vitamin mm -hmm. c today mm -hmm. instead of finding out 
who's who's got a major deficiency and maybe mm-hmm. what that what that could be coming from because all the arm care in the world will not fix yeah, stiff but, hips. But let's back up, Rob. What you were, getting back to the whole arm care thing? What you were getting at? Maybe go a little bit deeper into what you were getting at as far as what you guys found. And is it that you, when when you went into that, you were basically saying, do people even want this? Yeah. Right. Do people even want mm-hmm. this arm care? Better program? advice. Right. And what what was the findings of just that part? Well, I think this goes back to what Gray was talking about. It was like, yeah, I'd love it, but I don't know. Like when my when my check engine light goes on in my car, I know I need to take it a mechanic. I think with arm care and with some of these things, as I mean, where do we start and how do I get better? I, I mean, the majority of these coaches are, well, I'm volunteers, right? So they're trying to help their kid out. They're trying to help their neighbor's kid out. Like, like they're coming from a place of good, but then how do you, how do you make it efficient, logical, not take away from the scope of the day, which is they're, they're listen, the practice. I, we, we well, yeah, we're here to practice, right? We're here to get better. Right. And so, um, and we often do that as a staff, like let's realize what we really need here. Right? This all started with players wanting to play a game with a ball. And then a coach came around and said, Hey, can I drive the bus or can I help you maybe play a little better? And then, Oh yeah, let's make sure like no one has a big injury. on to go to the hospital. Let's get an athletic trainer. in, Right. I mean, there's a structure to the nature of, but it's never been about the support staff. It's been about the player. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's where we got to focus our attention. And so I think that, what Kyle's paper um, did with the group was it just talked about, Hey, there's a need and desire for this, but I don't know where to start. Right. What's my, what's my joy of cooking look like for arm care. And yeah, I can buy offline this 17 different bands and we do these exercises, but it takes a lot of time. And how do I know the quality to do with it? And so there's, there's different components to it of the risk reward because I would say once again, if if I go back to when I was 24 and figuring out if I was going to go do and do biomechanics or go into soccer coaching, if I go over the coaching side 20 years later and I'm in the NCAA and only have a certain number of times, certain number of hours in the week to do this or minutes, there better be a big enough value off of what we're doing because if we're not doing that, we could be learning something else from a on-field standpoint, video standpoint, whatever it is. And I think that's the piece that Kyle's work was able to, to start the discussion about is, okay, we know where you're at here. Now we can create a path to meet you there. Right. And then we'll figure out what the next issue is. Cause there's going to be a next, or there's no question about it, but at least we will know that here's a way to do it. Here's a way to scale it. Here's a way to structure it. And now we can move forward to hopefully bridging this gap with all these youth arm injuries. And, you know, I, well, I think I honestly think the, the the solution comes when you know there are way more arm care programs than there are arm care risk screens, and yep. the minute we see the arm care approach that cleans screens the quickest, mm-hmm. I think the other businesses will either start doing it that way or just evaporate. That's yep. usually what happens. Back to back yep. to standard. And that's where I, Lee and I sometimes bang our heads because we we get we work with guys like yourself, Mike Contreras. We work with people in authority positions and leadership positions that somehow can enforce a standard. And then we get down into places where I think there's just not enough information. There's not a clean enough way to talk about 
the the standards. When I started thinking, all right, what if I didn't know what those guys did for arm care? What if I didn't know your best uh, idea for arm mm-hmm. care? What would what would I do? And I was trying to almost oversimplify it, going back to fundamental movement patterns and then do some long toss, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, because I know people are going to say, I don't have time. I don't have equipment. Mm-hmm. I don't even mm-hmm. think I should be mm-hmm. doing this. Well, if we could change some fundamental screens with an array of body weight movements mm-hmm. and some long toss stuff, because I don't, I don't think you need resistance tubing for, for arm care. I just, I, I don't, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it can help. And if you've got it, but the minute you bring a piece of equipment out, I don't know if the standard of quality of way that equipment gets used. So I'm back to body weight. Sure. I'm back to, you know, something, you know, that, that looks very, very easy for everybody to do and say, I'd be willing to throw in a readiness warm up or a risk workout. Sure. But, but don't do both. And I think arm care is standing on both those. I need something to check your state of readiness. The warm up can actually be a screen mm-hmm. if something gets pinged here. So we got that. And then what are you doing in supplement if you have a vulnerability or, or a deficit? And that's, that's the way I'd break it down. So I would try to first tell coaches the way you're warming them up isn't the way you're working them out. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that seems oversimplified when I said it, but I've been in enough baseball environments where the warm up is just the workout light. Yeah. And the, <laughs> and so these are two distinct things. One should get these bodies and tissues ready for it. Mm-hmm. And one should be working on the stuff in the background then that it needs yeah. to function better. Well, and I do think like the, the consistent thing you'll see with a lot of the good coaches at the youth levels, they have their stations. Right. And so what stations is a sort of purpose act. Cause a lot of the follow-up with Kyle was like, you know, do you really think this matters? Do you think this is thing? And I said, of course it is. But if everything clears up in a 12 year old, because now we're carrying five two five gallon buckets of sunflower seeds down to the foul pole and back, because now we've got a little bit more tension. We've got a little more strength, we've got a little bit of time on our tension. We got a little more integrity to position ourselves better. You got to be okay with that. Cause it's not about the screen. It's about the outcome. Right. And so, but with someone else where that doesn't work and you, you know, you then do your retest, retest and know the shoulder's not clean. Okay. How do we follow it up? And, and then what is, but it's never getting back to your point earlier. It's not about the intervention. It's right. about what the intervention creates and the sustainability of that, and the ability to have to carry over and then train that and leverage that from a functional skill standpoint. I think every screen we've ever developed without even having outside intervention, we always said if our screens don't align with outcomes, right. then our screens are wrong. Right. But we got real lucky because we were trying to look at, at outcomes. We were, we weren't trying to predict injury or success. We weren't mm-hmm. trying to predict anything. We were saying the people who do worse on this thing do worse in that big thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and do people who systematically do better, you know, and the odds, the odds game seems to work out when movement is compromised, you're going to have more barriers to skill acquisition. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean they're impossible. Mm-hmm. They're just going to impose greater risk and mm-hmm. probably not be as sustainable. Mm-hmm. So as I was talking about earlier, I think the things of thinking about the movement systems approach with our culture, it's test, retest, right? It's uh, holding ourselves to a standard, talking about standards and being okay that if you're below standard, but let's do something different. Um, 
it's, it's also, and this is still really uncomfortable. Like the idea that other people will check your work. Also, this is a collaborative approach. This isn't about you. This is about the player and us circling around to be better. The other thing, and this is probably you, but you, you talked about what do I spend my time on a lot of in the majority of the time. I, I try to figure out what the continuum of function is and where do we have gaps and where can we fill that in objectively and where do we fill that in subjectively and how do we consistently develop that validity of that story. And now we're starting to see from a staff standpoint and understanding where we're trying to go is they're starting to identify those gaps and be like, Hey, this isn't helping us. We can be better at this. For example, we've been, you know, playing around with rotary stability. We go all twos, we go all ones with the new screen. And, and there was some discussion about, okay, what's next for us? Well, a lot of it was, well, what do we do with the information? It's like, well, we'd like it to affect our programming. Well, how would it affect our programming? Well, what's that look like? And that drove us within ourselves to think about, okay, what's our movement standard for this to fill this bucket to support our program? But only with the understanding that we needed consistency. We need to understand reliability. We understand validity to us. We need to be able to scale it to all seven different locations. And we got to be able to track it efficiently over time. But that was one of the interesting things that most recently happened. And now that we've had this culture of test, retest, standards, reliability, validity, 360 review, consistency of measure. Now this, the group of the individuals that are more boots on the ground working, the players are seeing, okay, we can be better and this is how. But not just throwing random stuff on a wall because we got a flyer or we got an email from someone identifying where our gaps are, we working better you know, connecting an objective marker with their program to track over time. And really when we think about doing FMS testing in season, it's have you globally changed your movement ability? And as a result, should we change your movement program, which maybe due to stress recovery, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have changed your movement ability or movement preference, let's make sure we don't keep you doing the exact same thing that you were a month ago. How often pick pick maybe one and give me kind of walk me through as 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 that as this one metric being an example whether it's the movement screen mm-hmm. whatever maybe not even the movement screen test retest kind of walk us through one example of one of those metrics of how you test retest how often do you do it throughout the season we test retest like? each month each month every each month each month we get no, each month we get a new full screen on our player and so when we go through that's part of our general monthly assessment we have a we have a way we go through it. It's just a rolling average to get th- everyone through in 30 days. So it's not seven players on one day. It's one a day or it's two because of a road trip or whatever. And it's another 15, 20 minutes on the front end of the day. Athletic trainer takes certain things. Strength coach takes certain things. They come together for the program below standard, above standard. How's that compare? We figure out the path forward. What other metrics are you looking at on a, on a consistent basis throughout a, throughout a season? Uh, Everything shoulder range of motion. No, not everything. So if you have a history where we think you have something that has helped us with you, we always, that's, that's a, that's a go for There's an individual rider on each person as well. Um, But it's the basics. It's it's nothing impressive. It's shoulder range of motion. It's FMS. It's vertical jump. It's um, we do vertical jump, hands on hips, vertical jump without hands on hips, unilateral, bilateral. And then we do um, grip strength in four different positions. There was something you got me thinking about when you were talking about setting those standards. And and I guess you and I were talking about it, it was probably four, maybe four and a half years mm-hmm. where pro athletes were flying into Raleigh-Durham. They were coming over to mm-hmm. see you at the K-Lab. I was coming down to meet up and I never even 
it never even occurred to me that that how much pressure I would I was under. We were just applying the model, but before I would arrive, you had done an SFMA, a YBT with the grad students and FMS. You probably grabbed some force plate stuff. I mean, you had done a full workup. Then you and I go in. You take off your data collection hat. We put on our clinician hats. Right. We go into the SFMA, go into a breakout, start talking about tissues, maybe dry needle something, come back out of the rabbit hole. You're right back on the exact same testing regime you were before. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if many physical therapists on the planet get the kind of feedback on an intervention that I was getting by doing sure. that. But I was getting better because number one, I wanted you and I would have like two days on these cases or a day and a half. So we had to create a ripple effect. Not that I could say I caused that you could see. So the the evaluation was actually on you. Uh, The treatment was on me and the retest slash evaluation was on you. And that level of transparency, it never bothered me that you were checking my work. Or that <laughs> you were going to think I dropped the ball or I was going to think you missed something. That's right. And and I can't imagine what it would be like having to practice in a vacuum if I didn't have somebody who knew the exact same thing I was looking yeah. at and we were both trying it, but you're not going to tell me I made a change when I didn't. Right. That, that kind of safety mm-hmm. is what Daniel Coyle talks about in his book, The Culture Code, about... I honestly think if if the clinicians could walk away from what we've done here, it's you got to get with somebody you consider a peer and one of you evaluate and one of you treat and one mm-hmm. of you reevaluate and, and keep flipping that because I honestly think if there's any one behavior that connects the people who sit in these chairs, the, the, the people who come on this show that we've got history with, it's that. I don't care if you do the assessment and I do the treatment, vice versa, right. but that data is going to rule the day and give us the feedback we need to have the next talk we need to talk about. And it never even occurred to me that I didn't feel guarded about that, but I've gone into many environments trying to show people some clinical intervention. They don't even want the pressure. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have to reproduce that. How are you going to get better if you don't? So, well, I think that goes back to two things. One is what's this about? mm -hmm. Is it about you? Is it about the person in front of you? Just had a talk, month ago with uh, students at Elon DPT in a sports elective and went through everything. And, and I was like, there's one commonality of all you wanted to go into sports. Realize that you're not the goal. Hmm. If you're a PT. You're not, the goal is not to be in rehab. It's not, <laughs> it's not. So just realize you're a function of something bigger. Yeah. And as a result, you have to communicate and be part of something bigger in communicating. And I think that that's the second piece. You can communicate or you can have a relationship. While we communicated, I think we had a relationship of trust to understand that there's a bigger picture here, what we're trying to accomplish. And yeah, we may not have the answers. I mean, I still go back to the fundamentals of us trying to go through the biomechanics stuff and get it analyzed. And at the same time, you're already down your treatment pathway and success is made. And we're still trying to process and identify markers and all, and things are a lot faster now. I get that. But even if we would have gotten the biomechanical analysis done, it would have come back to what's the foundational clinical things that we should target to figure out how to improve this movement strategy. I totally, we didn't need everything you did to know where we were going to intervene. Right. 
but you had a lot of explaining to do way more than me. <laughs> you had a couple other PhDs looking in. You had a few docs who were concerned. There's usually a strength coach or a PT coming with them. And it took all that extra data and support to really, I think, make them comfortable with the the change that we're a little bit cavalier with. We're, we're talking about where we're going to eat. And it was always barbecue, <laughs> no matter which athlete we're, we're eating barbecue today. So, but uh, no, it was, it was just unique hearing you talk about it because we were doing test retest and some of the, the tightest turnarounds. Yeah. And it was still fun to realize how plastic most situations are. Most people walked in thinking we were going to help them define the limitations of their structure. Yeah. And we didn't, we, yeah. we stretched the function of their plasticity. Yeah. Um, I saw we were talking to Robin queen about that early on and bringing in people and, and trying to connect. Cause she was doing a lot of great work with Don joy at the time with some post-op ACLs. And, and it was really a matter of like, all right, we're seeing them They're You know, the plenty of research has been done then. Like they don't move as well as their peers. They, nothing really changes between the time of discharge and, you know, 12 months and whatnot. And, and, uh, and, and it was, it was, you know, it was a point of what's the, what's the premise under which we take biomechanical data. Right. Right. What's the foundation to it? Is it that they have full free range of motion? Is it that they don't have an inflamed knee or an inflamed ankle? Because all those things fit into it. And she was such a great mentor of understanding like how to tie some of these things together from a clinical standpoint with all the work that she'd done with the, with the docs at Duke to start thinking about how to connect and all of our experience, honestly, with their and they were checking well. their work too, right? Yeah, they, they and, weren't they and, weren't good with kids who'd had a previous ACL 100%. coming back for another one, and hundred percent. And what I was getting from that because that was running in parallel was, you know, these these younger kids have an ACL, and the scar on their knee is not the only scar they're wearing. Right. You That's can right. recognize a a uh, signature mm-hmm. of movement dysfunction a year after they've been cleared and playing sports and that mark is still on their function, not just on the, the skin of their knee. And I think it that doesn't it's have now, to be. No, it, it, and I think that we're still now having a discussion about, okay, what criteria goes into that continuum? And just now, just in IJSPT, it was probably two months ago, we've now started to talk about the fact that people should be fit before they go back to ACL reconstruct. Like, which just seems... Like when you think about what a return to sport, return to play thing is like, how is that not, if you're not fit enough, if you're not strong enough. And so we often discuss when does normal happen, right? And so when we think about some of our longer rehabs, we don't, we don't have a uh, knock on wood or whatever. We haven't had a, a ton of ACLs to work through, but it's a lot of UCLs and, um, and it's, it's all right. So when does normal strength conditioning practices integrate? Right. And if normal, not to necessarily build up from rehab, isn't halfway through the rehab process to think about then the buildup of a, to support the physiologic demands of the skill activities, we're just missing a window of true stimulus and development. And listen, we don't have baseline data. That's fine. There's normative comparative data. There's, there's something to look at. Are we increasing our tension, the ability to develop tension throughout time to suggest a level of fitness? Right. And yes, I understand like the triple hop's not good or the single hop on the one leg for distance isn't good, but that's because we keep comparing it to the other side as opposed to some sort of standard. And also that's, it's not, nothing's done in a vacuum. It goes back to what's the data set look like. And then, yeah, once you get done your ISO connect testing and you're out of the chair, 
and then you function on a leg, you still have to do that over time, 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 time to continue. And there seems to be this massive idea that running earlier is better, which just is, you know, I think sprinting right. can be beneficial. But the, the thought that we're now going to run for 30 minutes to ingrain these asymmetries and this offloading, because that helps stimulate the quad more. I mean, I, I go back to what we were talking about earlier about how do we, how are we, how do we engage our community? Well, two more. Neighbor, do you want to do 10 sprints today with appropriate recovery and call that your workout? Or you want to run for 30 minutes? I can tell you what you're going to be less sore, less hurt by, and maybe actually have fun with and want to do again. No, that, that, in, in the morning when Lee's like warming up his keyboard, I'll usually grab a cup of coffee and try new words out on him. And he never even looks up, <laughs> you know. But, but I'm like, isn't it funny how we have a word called sports medicine and we've got sports specific conditioning, but there's not really a word called sports wellness. And you'd have to define that by a reasonable number of risk factors, yeah. a standard number of risk factors, as opposed to a, you know, off standard. So, so everybody's going to have a little bit of risk depending on the, the mm-hmm. wounds you got getting here. But, but I honestly think that you got to go through sports wellness to get into sports fitness because anything in sports fitness that would compromise your wellness Mm -hmm. probably would compromise your health. Mm -hmm. And so you can't, it can't Mm -hmm. run backwards. So right there, it's not what exercise should we do today? I already know based on your data, all the exercise we could delete for today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not a hard decision you know, because we can get a lot of stuff done, but it's got to serve, mm-hmm. serve all those. And, and I think the most important part is what are you going to do? Yeah. Because you can have the best template in the world. You can write out the best program you want, but if it doesn't get done, it doesn't matter. Right. And so meeting the athlete where they're at in a curricular environment to understand this progress, understanding what their monitoring markers are that we have with it, that we want to not work through, but work with mm-hmm. and not push up against it. Cause once again, that's not the goal. The goal is, you know, three for four tonight and, you know, 10 RBIs or whatever it is. Right? is it? But, but I think, I think Rob, one thing uh, to kind of wrap this up a little bit is, is one thing you consistently said, and I think it kind of became a little bit more clear in just that statement is making sure the athlete or the individual, and let's just not talk about athletes, everything you're, everything you've said, can, can apply to the 40-year-old who wants to lose some weight. Yep. It's making them aware. Mm-hmm. It's that awareness and it's that communication on how you communicate. Here are the things we are monitoring. You need to know. That's right. The athlete needs to know. You need to know. They need to be well aware of these things. And if these things, whatever these things are, whether it's their weight, mm-hmm. whether it's their sleep, mm-hmm. whether it's their grip strength, mm-hmm. all of these things, make sure they're aware. This is the standard. Yep. Are you below? And then I think over time, correct me if I'm wrong here, over time, they become, if you continue to communicate that to them, they know when their gauges are off. No, 100%. You don't have to tell them. 100%. And I, what we try to do is say, here are three markers for you that we're trying to get better at. We're not trying to make you better at everything because you're pretty, you're pretty good at a lot of stuff right now. But here's some things you're below at that we're trying to adjust your program with to 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 get three you opportunities. At. That's right. It's and, and it's funny because you know we, we talk about that. Um, it was just an opportunity to reach the standard. That's all we're doing with this change in your program. But if you don't do it, it doesn't matter. And I think that that's the other thing that we're really trying to um, to support is 
if you're not making the progress that you feel is important, let's, let's, let's retest you. It's not a problem. If you're making progress and you're, and we're not making it there, or it's not fast enough. You're allowed to ask for help. As long as we're getting the work in and we're getting the frequency and we get the time to allow for change to occur. We're good. Like I, I hope we're starting to develop this culture of, Hey, and it's not asking for help. It's how can I be better? How can I meet this goal that I have? Because if you're, you know, whether it's the 40 year old trying to lose weight and you're still, you know, lucky charms for breakfast, Hey, we can start pretty basic. Right. Or, you know, the, you know, there's, there's plenty of examples there of it's rarely about, and I was talking to Mark Jarvis yesterday. He's a uh, head of, uh, um, they've got a learning lab at Southampton FC now to, to focus on just how do we teach? How do we learn? Right. And, um, which I think is just a fascinating concept. We think about coaches being teachers, but I don't know how many coaches think of themselves as a teacher, like life skills, personal, whatever, but like, no, your environment on the field, like how are we reinstilling feedback loops of success, of progress, of rebuilding, of re-engagement, of developing the positive outcome, knowing what's supposed to happen. I mean, just communication and, and as a, as a coach and sometimes coach on the, um, where my kids teams, I'll, I'll think about that, like, and, and leveraging some academic experience. It's, and working with uh, FMS teaching in the past, it's, am I hearing to just check a box or I'm, am I talking just to check a box that I've done it? Or am I talking in such a way that they can hear and understand, repeat, and we can perform. Those are two entirely different things. No, I think that's a, that's a good statement because I've never made anybody learn about the movement screen to explain to them what the movement screen told me and them we should be working on. And that's what I do. I take it right to the heart of the matter. Many times, instead of telling them what their FMS score, YBT score is, I just basically give them uh, an awareness drill and, and let them feel the difference in that left and right side or that bending pattern and that extension pattern. And their eyes light up. They're right. like, yeah, that... So we connect on it. They don't care what the rest of the score was unless I bring it up, right. but it took me right to that weakest link. Now I'm going to throw out some minimum effective mm-hmm. dose and we're mm-hmm. going to see what changes. And sure enough, when I get them to that thing, they know it changes and I can measure something that that's confirms right. what they thought. And what most people don't understand is that's an alignment point that I can never, ever undo. We, I just, I didn't make you learn my language to understand what, what that feeling is, right. right. That that's not a normal feeling. You don't have to learn my language. We got alignment on that. And, and I'm, I think that's what's happening when we get this data, when you talk to somebody about that below standard, that shouldn't be an uncomfortable situation. That's an opportunity. If you're a personal trainer, I've heard, I don't want to ever tell my client they're, they're bad at anything. Mm-hmm. No, no, I don't either. Mm-hmm. Right. That's an, that's an opportunity. This yeah. is, this is where we got to focus. We will see, and you will feel the biggest difference when this changes. Yeah. And I still remember early on, we were, we were still at the time I was focused on the composite score and trying to provide a way to like give some context to it may have been one of the Duke FMS things when we were just sitting around and I was, and it was Chang and I spitball. I was like, what if we just added 75 to the out of 21? And if you're like a 96, you're an A. <laughs> be a 21 if you're uh like 88 you're a b and if you're like a 78 you got pain so let's talk about it but you're just a c yeah like would we like ha- like people have context for percentiles and percentages and whatnot um and it's not that different for the borg scale borg scale six to 20 what's that mean like give me an anchor give me a reference like 
like reliability in a research study different than like how does someone actually feel and what they can connect with. But I think so often it's that connection and letting people understand in that connection that there's that when you connect with me and ask for help and ask for support and ask for change, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to make sure we're making improvements. Because particularly, I mean, particularly in our sport, there are stats on everything. There's stats on everything to talk to the players and the coaches, to everyone with like, all right, what's your back of your baseball card look like performance stat? This is what it looks like. This is how we want to communicate. Can you be a Hall of Famer with below standard or anything? I have no doubt that you can. But we're trying to make that a minimal limitation with your overall mm-hmm. development as a baseball player. And I think that that is, you know, that idea of having something to hold yourself accountable to just as they are helps connect and helps our communication potentially develop a relationship to lead to real change. Rob, that's awesome, man. Thanks so much for coming in and joining us. It's a pleasure having you in, in, in the studio. Thanks for letting me stop by. I appreciate it. <laughs> Anytime. That will do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute and subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your own movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.